Our Father, as we turn to your word, we think of the prayer that Jesus prayed when he said, your word is truth, sanctify your people with your word. So Lord, uh, we pray that your, your word, which is true, it is reliable, it is not that which will deceive us. Help us, Lord, to think clearly and accurately about the realities of the spiritual world we live in. Help us to see ourselves, Lord, as you see us, to be more discerning of the issues of our hearts. Help us to find our hope, our confidence, our trust in Christ. And may we celebrate the gospel together today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It really is no wonder that the early church that we read about in the opening chapters of the book of Acts was a growing and dynamic church. Think about it. It was a church in which the members were filled with the Holy Spirit. The members were proclaiming boldly the gospel, even though they had been threatened and some of, some of whom had been arrested. They didn't stop them. They kept proclaiming the gospel. They were a people who were de devoted to prayer. They were a people who were united. And they were also very generous. They were giving very generously to each other, so much so that we read in chapter 4, verse 34 of Acts, that they had eliminated all of the needy people among their church. There's one problem. As you know, it wasn't too long before that church, as dynamic and as wonderful as it was, that early church fellowship became corrupted by sin. The early church was indeed, as many churches are, found itself with hypocrites among its members. Nothing new under the sun there. And by the way, there is no perfect church in this world. Amen? There's no perfect church in this world. You know, there are some people who refuse to ever join a church because they say, oh, I, I, I'm hoping that someday I'll find a spirit-filled church just like the early church. Well, folks, there is no perfect church in this world. I like the quote that Charles Spurgeon made when he offered this observation. He said, the day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. And so we find here in Acts chapter 5 that the early church members were following the leading of not the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. Some of these members were actually following the lead of Satan. These two members of the early church I believe, came to a, a worship service at differing times. One was on time, maybe. The other one was quite late. I don't know. Um, they were both struck down. doesn't say by God directly. Perhaps they were struck down and had a heart attack because of the guilt, the kind of remorse that just overwhelmed them. But I think it's more clearly implied that God himself struck them down due to their own choice to follow a path of deception and hypocrisy. And the suddenness of their deaths resulted in the following reaction. We saw this last week, chapter 5, verse 5. Great fear, not just fear, great fear came upon all who heard of it. In verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. 
Now, some people would read this account in Acts chapter 5, and they would conclude that this was a disastrous event in the life of a church that was thriving and growing. There are some who would say that a church certainly will not be uh, growing very, very effectively, unlikely, would, would certainly not grow, when members are falling down dead during their worship services because of unholy living. And yet I would beg to differ. I'm convinced that this great fear that we read about in verse 5 and verse 11, this great fear is the beneficial outcome of this particular event of these people being disciplined by God. If we understand this great fear to mean the fear of God and not the fear of man, that they were filled with a fear of God, that's a good thing. If you look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5, you'll notice that it did not hinder the growth of this church. As a matter of fact, it actually enhanced and continued the process of growth. It says the people, verse 13, held them, that is, these Christians in this church, in high esteem, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their numbers. Indeed, God has never intended the church to be a fellowship of believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but live a lifestyle that contradicts that confession. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And also Proverbs 16, 6, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Last week we considered several insights that were gained from this text of Scripture that pertain to God. If you were not here, I would again admonish you to be sure to listen to that sermon online, part one, because that is a very important background to understand as we make our way through this text. But this morning we're going to move forward here, and I want us to consider a number of insights in this text that we learned about Satan and also that we learned about church members. And so point number two, if you will, last week was point number one, point number two of this two-week sermon is what do we learn about Satan in this passage that will help provide encouragement for Christ's church to fear God? Notice verse 3 of chapter 5 in which we read that Peter says to Ananias, having brought this money now and laid it before the apostles' feet, and he's claiming that it's the full price of the land that he sold. It really was not. He's kept back some of it for himself, which again, he was not required to do this. It's not the fact that he was withholding money that, that somehow uh, he was supposed to give it all. No, but he's saying it was a complete price, even when it was not. So he says to uh, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan, clearly, without doubt, is an evil adversary of Christ and of everyone who belongs to Christ. Spiritual warfare is real. We're seeing it right here in this text in the early church. Even though the devil was mortally wounded by Christ when Christ died on the cross and when he arose from the dead, Satan 
has always and continues to be actively opposing the church of Jesus Christ. The apostles warned God's people to be alert, to be on the lookout for Satan. There are numerous texts of Scripture. I could just rattle them off to you. Ephesians chapter 6, that great passage talking about spiritual warfare. James 4, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 Peter 5, which says, Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then what does he say? Peter says, But you resist him. There's a need to resist Satan in this world. Because Satan's attacks on that early church came from two different directions. The first direction was from without. If you'll recall, we looked at chapter 4, the local authorities there, we read about, misused their God-given authority, and they sought to intimidate the apostles Peter and John. And these authorities made up a rule. They came up with their own legislation, and they said, listen, you are not allowed, you are forbidden to declare anything without this message anymore about this Jesus and this resurrection from the dead. We don't want to hear any more of that. You're stirring up trouble for us and all the people around here. Interestingly enough, that strategy backfired. Because when you think about it, here's this band of believers, when they're told you can't declare the message, what do they do? They gathered together, they prayed, and as a result of their prayer, they were emboldened as they were filled with the Holy Spirit again, and they even bore witness again and again to this message of resurrection. And what did they do? They repeated the message of the resurrection to the authorities that told them, we don't want to hear this anymore, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> it's really sort of comical. It backfired. Instead of silencing them, it's all the more they're repeating it. And ironically, the attempts of these authorities to eliminate this gospel witness led to them, they themselves being an audience to hear that message. A short time later, if you look at Acts chapter 8 and other portions of later on the account that Luke records in Acts, you learn that the persecution then is ratcheted up even more. And so there's greater opposition thrown at this church and you'll know that as a result of that, the church begins to spread out. They don't stay any longer right there in Jerusalem. They begin to move out of Jerusalem to other places. And guess what? They carried that gospel witness far and wide. And the bottom line is that it is impossible to contain the Christian church and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As hard as Satan tried working from without, He's not very successful in that particular strategy. So what does he do? The second strategy that Satan used was to attack the church from within. From within. That's when Acts 5. You see, if Satan fails to succeed in sidelining the church by external forces, he will apply his evil energies to destroying the church in its unity, in its purity, and in its integrity. Here is Ananias following the devil's lead when he lies to these local church leaders. He claims that the amount that he is 
donating to the needy people among the church there in Jerusalem. He's claiming that it is the full proceeds of this track of land that we owned in such and such a place. And here it is in its entirety, right here. We're laying it right before you. He had already entered, I believe, into some agreement with them that that would be his action. Clearly, Satan is at work here. Satan hates the idea of people who are oneness of heart. He hates the concept of love among believers. He hates the generosity that characterizes spiritual believers. Satan's strategy is to create phony, disingenuous fellowship. I've come up with a term also known as counterfeit koinonia. Koinonia is just the Greek word that means fellowship. Counterfeit Koinonia, that's what Satan loves. He loves to promote compromised standards of holiness among God's people. He celebrates when outward acts of piety are done for selfish reasons. He loves it when Jesus' people are busy, but they're prayerless. You see, Satan loves when God's people are serving, while at the same time, deep down, in all their service, they're never once hardly ever meditating on the Scriptures. Their service is all done in the flesh. They're not thinking about Christ. They're just busy. You see, Satan loves it when we help other people, but deep down he wants those people to have as their motive. They're really longing not to see other people help so much as to have their own name, their own reputation, to find some sort of applause and accolades given to them so that their real motive is selfish not really generous satan loves that satan is never happier than when the church members lose sight of the gospel that when they're looking for acceptance looking for affirmation by striving to impress other people rather than living out the riches of their identity as a child of god saved by grace Think about Jesus' own ministry. Some of his strongest criticism was directed at people, get this, who regularly prayed, who regularly tithed, and who regularly fasted. That's more than most of us do. But he brought against those people very strong criticism because why? Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says, these people practiced their righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Their motives were all wrong. Jesus reminded his followers that it's their heavenly Father that sees what is done in secret, that hears them, knows them, and responds to them in secret. One of Satan's strategies that is most utilized, I would say, probably more often than, than any other strategy he uses, is the strategy of deception. Deception. Not surprising that that's why Peter picks up this whole idea that Satan is leading him to do this, because here's what he's doing. He's deceiving the people around him, Ananias and Sapphira. In 2 Corinthians 11, we read Paul commenting that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's disguised. 
He loves to present himself as one way when really he's another way. There's true hypocrisy. And Satan loves to operate in the shadows of half-truths and dishonesty. And that's why when Pat is reading this portion of John chapter 8, I wanted to have you hear Jesus' comments as he sort of outs Satan. He sort of says, okay, here's who Satan really is. Verse 44 of John chapter 8, Jesus said, The devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever the devil speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Satan's basic nature is to distort the truth, distort the facts, exaggerate the truth. Those who follow Satan's lead, they love to blame other people for their own sin. Those who follow Satan's lead love to minimize the seriousness of their own wrongdoing, and they love to magnify the faults of other people. It is Satan who loves to question the Word of God, to deny the Word of God, to distort the Word of God, and to substitute our own thoughts as if they were God's thoughts. For example, I've often wondered what was going through Ananias and Sapphira's minds as they both came in separately at different times, claiming that one thing was true when it really was not. What are they thinking? Something like this? Nobody will ever know. What deception? What lies? Or are they thinking, ah, this is no big deal. Uh, yes, it was. They might be thinking, well, what I do with my money is my business. Oh? How easily deception is something that takes hold of our hearts and our own minds as we oftentimes follow Satan's lead. May I remind you again of Proverbs 12, 22, where we read, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. If you read the New Testament often enough, you'll notice that they describe the fact that if we are among people of like precious faith as family of God, dishonesty is to be avoided in our conversations. It's to be avoided in our communication. Why? Colossians 3.10 lays it out this way, 3.9 and 10. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So I'll just conclude this first point by just reminding us of what James said. James said in chapter 4, if you want, want to turn there, James 4, we read in verses 6 through 8. He talks about the importance of being humble before God. People who lie, people who are deceptive, people who follow the, the lead of Satan oftentimes are very focused on themselves, their pride, their proud people. He says, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. That's what it means to walk in the fear of God. Not to walk in the path of Satan, but to walk in the fear of God. That brings me now to our last point here, uh, point number three, in which we're going to ask ourselves, what do we learn about church members in this text that will encourage us as Christians to fear God? Well, the first thing I want to show here is a reminder that any thought that church members can hide sin from God is nothing but delusional. It's delusional. Consider this verse from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. A verse, if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, it's worthy of your meditation. It's worthy of something that will help you in the struggle against somehow uh, living a life of pretentiousness or hypocrisy or somehow hiding sin, quote-unquote. Hebrews 4.13, it's in page 1423 in your your pew Bible. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things, that's the key phrase there, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What a powerful incentive it seems to me, this text is, that we are, in reading this text, we are encouraged to flee from any kind of quote-unquote secret sins. If you just think practically for a moment, how does this work itself out? Well, based on this text alone, if Jesus were standing behind you, while you're holding your phone in your hand, or when you're sitting at your computer, or your lap, you're dealing with something on your your iPad, and you're beginning to feast your eyes and feed lustful desires in your heart by looking at pornography for the who knows how many times, how many times you've done it, would you continue that if you knew Jesus was standing behind you? Guess what? According to this text, he is. Would you, if you knew Jesus were watching and standing in the room, would you descend into a a name-calling argument with your spouse and bring up, dredge up all these things from the past and have a knockdown, drag-out fight with them, calling each other's names? Would you do that if you knew Jesus was right there in the room? Guess what? He is. It's a radical approach to understanding that anything you're doing is there being done before Jesus Christ. It's a whole different way of living your life. Because sometimes we think we can live life apart from Christ, but you can't. It's all lived before Him. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. His presence helps you. Just like when other people are in your life, they help you keep from descending into maybe poor choices and bad uh, thoughts and behaviors. More than that, I would like to suggest that unrepented sin, when it becomes sin patterns among the people of God, believers, it's not a minor matter. That's what we learn in this text. 
not a minor matter. Unrepented, repeated sin patterns corrupts other members of the body of Christ in ways that I don't think any of us can fully understand or fathom. Now you're saying, where did you get that principle? Because I thought you were talking about quote-unquote secret sins. Well, I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, addresses this principle very clearly when the church there was dealing with a situation which clearly someone in the church was living in sin. And, he, and Paul says, do, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now, how many of you have ever baked bread with yeast? With yeast. Okay, some of you have. Well, it's not really very complicated. You uh, take a little bit of warm water and you pour a little packet of yeast in there and you let it do its thing for a while and then you dump in the ingredients that it's supposed to, the recipe calls for, some flour and other things, and you mix it all up and, and uh, you let it sit there. And if it's in a rather warm place and you let it sit there long enough, then you're going to see whether or not that yeast is active. And if that yeast is active, guess what? It's in that whole lump of dough. That whole dough, whole lump of dough rises. And you can break off parts of it and put it in there as individual rolls that maybe like in a little uh, cupcake pan and you have little rolls. All, you let that sit a little longer, the whole, every little one of those will rise. The yeast is mixed in there in the whole, in the whole uh, lump of dough. And the same is true when it comes to the idea of the thought of infection of sin among the church members. It spreads throughout the whole body. If it's not treated, if it's not addressed, if it's not confronted in a loving way, if it's not contained. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who's living in sin continually or repeatedly for a long period of time, he what? He needs to be removed from this fellowship. You cannot have someone living like that in an ongoing way, on and on and on, and just let it be that way. No, he says the person who lives in sin, whose life is at odds with his or her profession of faith, must be removed from membership. Now, we're not talking about doing this in a way that seeks to condemn that person we do it only in a process of lovingly and carefully and through biblical steps that are allocated for us in Matthew 18 and other places. It's restorative, biblical church discipline is actually beneficial. So that what was happening here in the early church as God brought this about and punished these two believers for their sin, so that what? So that the early church would live in the fear of God. It serves to deter other members from boldly sinning and carelessly sinning. So much so we read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, these words. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Why would you do that? Why would you rebuke someone who's continuing in sin? So that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. There's that word fearful again. Fearing God. Fearing the fact that he may indeed discipline, him, discipline us ourselves, himself. When we practice loving, corrective, restorative church discipline 
in accordance with the guidelines of Scripture, this discipline serves to advance the purity, the unity, the health of a local church. I think that's what's taught in this text in Acts chapter 5 as we think about church members. It actually was for the benefit of all the rest of the church members to walk in the fear of God and not be careless in their sin. There's one final thing I want to draw out here that's a little bit more extended and I want to take just a few moments to expound on it. I hope you'll follow this. This is very helpful, very important. This insight into church members we gain in this passage is this dynamic of what we call heart idols. Heart idols. You say, well, I don't see the word idols anywhere in that text. No, you don't see the word there, but you're seeing the dynamic operate in the hearts of these two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira. Because what you got to remember, outward behavior, what you see on the outside that someone chooses to do or to say, is the fruit of what rules our hearts. It's an important biblical understanding of behavior. So Ananias and Sapphira, they scheme, they lie to the church leaders, they insist that when they're bringing this money, oh yes, that's the full amount of the sale of the land, knowing full well that they're withholding a portion of it for themselves. In so doing, they are not only lying to the church family, but they're obviously sinning against God. It's a, it's a very serious problem. And what they were longing for, here's the question I want to raise. What are they desiring? What are they longing for that they're willing to sin in order to get it? Why are they going through this scheme? Why do they go ahead and and, uh, and, and fulfill that. And again, by the way, it is a telltale sign of a heart idol in your life or anybody's life is if you're willing to sin to get what you strongly desire. That's a sign of a heart idol. Brad Bigney, who I've had the pleasure, my wife and I have had a number of times of listening to him teach at some of these biblical counseling training times. He's a pastor in Kentucky. He's the author of the book, Gospel Treason. Uh, I've taught a Sunday school class on that before. If you've never read that book, excellent book on this whole issue of idols in your hearts. He says this, an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, our minds, and our affections more than God. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So what was Ananias and Sapphira's idol? You say, well, wait a minute. They are generous people. You're going, to criticize, you're going to find that there's someone going, yeah, they were generous people. They did give money away, and that's commendable. That's wonderful. But they did so in, under the guise of sinning and misleading people. And so I'm going to suggest to you that their hearts really were captured by their desire for approval for the praise of men. Yes, they were generous, but they did so in selling their land. They gave the money to these needy members, but what were they really doing? Their hearts strongly desired the applause of their fellow church members. They wanted to give the impression that they cared about other people by donating this money to the poor people among them, but that was really a hiding of what they really cared about because what they really cared about was themselves and their reputation among the other members of the church. 
You see, their hearts were captured by the opinions of other people. And they were struggling with what the Bible calls the fear of man. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, page 794 in your Pew Bible. Chapter 29, and by the way, um, this is an old copy, so they've changed the front of the book now. The, but uh, a lot of these helpful thoughts are also found in Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. When People Are Big and God is Small. That's a book that deals with this whole issue about being afraid of other people and their opinions of you rather than living in the fear of God. Okay, so here's... Here's the verse that really unpacks this thing for us. Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Fear of man brings a snare. That is, you're getting trapped. It's like it's constricting. It, 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 it it's, it's becomes binding in your life. But he who trusts the Lord will be exalted. You'll be lifted up. So I put in your notes there, what are some of the struggles that a person will likely have when people are big? People are big. And you're concerned about their opinions of you. When people are big and God is small, what are some of the problems that you might have in your life? Well, do you struggle with shyness? Insecurity? Peer pressure? Fear of failure? Do you need to be in control oftentimes or all the time? Are you self-conscious, easily embarrassed, defensive, oversensitive? Do you poorly handle rejection? These are all indicators of a heart that is, in a sense, struggling with or in, in the, in the uh, grap, grasp of this idol, heart idol, of a fear of man. And it's a fear that we all struggle with, right, from time to time. I struggle with some of these things from time to time. And when you think you've just finally broken through, you'll struggle with it again. But I want to take an example of, let's say, an insecure person. You can put yourself in here, or you can think of somebody else you know of. An insecure person. Here's this person. They feel trapped because of the fear they have of other people. And the insecure person will wonder if other people are going to reject him or reject her. And that person will incessantly, repeatedly do all of this thinking and rethinking and, and obsessive, uh, compulsive, if you will, uh, wondering to themselves, will this person really like me? So when they think of going into a group of people, who are they most concerned about? Themselves. And so they, they have questions in their minds and concerns about the opinions of other people concerning, will I find acceptance? Will I be okay with these people around me? And oftentimes this kind of, of uh, thinking and, and believing indicates that that person's faith in God has become very weak. It's not functioning very well at all in their day-to-day, moment-to-moment life. Something that obviously all of us struggle with from time to time. Hear me say that. This is not something you get instantaneous victory and you said, okay, I'm done with that problem in life. I'm moving on. No, it's a problem that continually recurs over and over again in our heart. If the fear of man is in a person's heart, it means that our trust in God has become weak. 
People who are motivated out of this fear, fear of other people, they look for approval, they look for love, they look for acceptance and significance or respect from somebody or someone other than God. And whoever has what you crave for has control of you. So if you're looking for that other person's approval, guess what? They have got a hold on you. And when you are looking to other people and their opinions for your approval, that person functions big in your heart as a person that's the most significant a person's opinion in your heart. And at those moments, God then becomes functionally sort of dwarfed and off to the side, and his opinion is really not important at that moment. As one biblical counselor, Rick Thomas, says, when we have that kind of thinking, he calls it the small God disorder. The small God disorder. Because in our relationships to God, when it becomes weak, our thinking about God has become distorted. And what we need at that moment is not what our world is telling us. The world tells us, you need more self-esteem. You need to think more highly of yourself. You need to be self-confident. You need to be a person who has an elevated view of yourself. More and more. (laughs) My friend, that's not what you need. Instead, you need to esteem God more highly at that moment. We need to fear God. We need to be remembered that who God is in the bigger scheme of life, that this person, whoever we're concerned about, their opinion of us, is not important. What's really important is God. He's the one who created me. I'm to live my life for him. He's the one. I want his opinion of me to be the one that's obviously the most significant one. Because God's opinion of us in the gospel is the only thing that will liberate us from the fear of man. Liberation comes when God is big and people are small. Jesus, when you think about his life, He was a person who was untethered. He was unaffected by the opinions of other people of him. He was not controlled by the opinions that people had of him one way or the other. Why? Because he was basking in the approval that the Father had of him. At his baptism, we read these words in Mark chapter 1. He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the Father says of Jesus Christ. The gospel declares that we gain God's approval through faith in the finished work of Christ. So the challenge for us is to rely on Christ's work on your behalf. To trust in Christ, to trust His life, His death, His resurrection. To lean on the gospel promises that we find. That nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. God's opinion of you in the gospel is unchanging. You don't have to wonder, I wonder if I get God's approval today when I messed up or when I said this crazy thing over here or when I forgot to do this or when I acted like an idiot in front of these people. No, in Christ, we are well-pleasing in His sight because of Jesus Christ. You will never gain acceptance on the basis of your works. Only Jesus' atoning works completed for you and me. May God help us with the gospel 
continually work on these heart idols in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. It is rich in its reminders of how much you hate sin, but of how much we can be set free from that sin through the gospel. And what, Lord, we also acknowledge that we have an enemy of our souls, that Satan wants us to live life independent of you. He loves, to live, uh, loves us to live under the radar. We try to sort of how hide from other people, from you, from the truth. We pray, Lord, that the gospel will set us free to be people who are real, people who are not in need of trying to be hypocritical in how we deal with things, that we can just be genuine, admitting our faults, admitting our struggles, forgiving each other, finding acceptance from one another based on the gospel that promises us acceptance from you, not on the basis of how well we've performed, but on the basis of Jesus and all that he performed for us. So, Lord, as we gather to your table, thank you for inviting us to do this. Thank you for reminding us of what you've done for us through this memorial meal together. We pray that you would cause us, Father, to be encouraged and give us greater victory and freedom from the fear of man, we pray, through the gospel. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand.